Alan Poe was a youngster, he wrote, the world shall be my theater, and I must either conquer or die. And several weeks before his death, he wrote, I do believe God gave me a spark of genius, but he quenched it in misery. In melancholy and bleak decay, its crumbling walls of lead and gray were groaning in the throes of giving way. Born 131 years ago in Boston, Poe represents one of the earliest founders of modern short story. However, Poe is considered one of America's finest, if not the finest, writers. He was a mood writer. Words meant more to him than the plot. Words, he demonstrated, could express through their sound much more than they could through their meaning. And I'll have to admit that my preference among authors lies in his direction. Many people detest his works as meaningless monstrosities, while others admire his poetic prose as the glorious perfection of the English language. As both fell lifeless upon the floor, and I fled screaming through the door, the house of Usher fell and was no This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. It is a very cold day here in the mountains of West Virginia. We had over four inches of snow yesterday. Um, it was zero degrees to two degrees Fahrenheit uh, at the closest town from here. And the fire is crackling right now, going strong, burning tons of wood to try to keep the house warm. And all of this is just so perfectly appropriate to our topic today, which is the one and only, one of the great creative masters in all of human existence, the master of mystery and the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. This is an episode that I've been excited to do for well over a year now. And our guest is an author. He is an, an artist and painter, a lecturer, and the curator of the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. His name is Chris Semtner. Um, if you want to check out his website where you can see, you can buy his books or check out his paintings, it's chrissemtner.com. Um, if you want to see where he is the curator, the po it's thepoemuseum.org. On Instagram, it's the Poe Museum. I'll have all the links in the show notes. Now, 
You may be wondering, weren't we in the middle of a series about Scandinavia? And uh, while we've, I have put out three episodes, um, my equipment, I mailed over a uh, headphones and microphone to different guests in Sweden. And uh, the next one was gonna be in Norway and the gear hasn't gotten there. And it's been well over a month. And so I have no idea what the life is, if there's any life left in that little series. Um, we'll just have to see and play it by ear. But I can't keep you guys hanging. Um, some of you are paying me on Patreon, so we gotta move forward. So for now, we're gonna keep it a little more local. And I'm so pumped about this episode, which is actually a two-part. There's two episodes here, both with Chris. The, um, we had such a long conversation and I'm so excited to read and, and actually play entire short stories by Poe on these two episodes that I thought, break it up and uh, we can get even more Poe. So the, the one you're listening to today is gonna be more biographical. It is going to be about um, his early life, the, the first two decades basically, where he uh, grew up in Virginia, in Richmond and in Charlottesville. Um, the second episode, which will come out in a few weeks, that is going to be more about his work, uh, where he stands in literature, some of his more macabre ideas, and um, even his de his mysterious death in the streets of Baltimore, and uh, some strange kind of paranormally type things uh, after his death, just with people thinking they've seen his spirit and stuff like that. Uh, both of these episodes are awesome. And Chris, I honestly, I don't think there's anyone on earth that can talk so eloquently and so um, captures your attention on the topic of Edgar Allan Poe. Now, I wanna say thank you to everyone on Patreon who's been helping out with this Our Numinous Nature project. We've got some new folks, Julia Anna Scott, uh, Eugene Elliott, Feral Forest folk who have just started their own podcast, uh, Abby Stern and Ellen Knight. I Well, yep, you're all pretty new there, so thank you. Everyone at the highest tiers, I wanna say thank you to Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw Topsy Farms, Alexander Kurashev, On Stanley, uh, Kaylee Lindman, Craig Coring, Diana Gonzalez, Earl C. Suter, Eugene Elliott, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jacob Griffin, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff McLaughlin, uh, Jess Padgett, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson-Cohen, Michael Zorn, Michelle Alderson, Michelle Miller, Nathan Griffin, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goeckner, Sophie McVicker, T. Pierce, the Militant Hippie, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, Waddle and Dobb Craftsman, and uh, the working class woodsman. And everyone at the lower tiers, everybody, thank you. And if you have been pitching in on Patreon, and uh, please send me your address, either through Patreon or Instagram or through my email address, which is attached in the show notes, because I wanted to give everybody a little print just for my appreciation for all your patronage over the past year or so. Now let's get right into a reading. So this is gonna be a longer reading because I wanna read an entire Poe short story. It's gonna take 30 minutes. If you wanna skip over it, go ahead to get right to the interview. But the story I picked is one that's probably a little less known than his major kind of like haunting stories. And it's, it's one that I think is relevant for multiple reasons. One, it takes place in the general area where I live and, um, you know, have visited, which is the Ragged Mountains outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. 
Now, there's a lot of little, what I would consider synchronicities about this story that make it even more exciting for me to read for you guys. Um, so to me, this story is about past life regression. It's about the reincarnation, which seems super ahead of its time. This story was published in 1844, 1845, okay? It takes place outside of Charlottesville. If you listened to the past podcast, which was called um, Past Life Regression with Carol Louie, we talked all about how the University of Virginia outside Charlottesville actually does past life research in their division of perceptual studies. And we talked about a few things on that episode. We talk about how um, in the studies of past lives, some hallmarks of that are that wounds and ailments seem to transfer from one life into another. So when, when at the university, when they're studying a child's story, um, sometimes there will be things like birthmarks that correlate to a past life wounding or trauma or something like that. Super fascinating. Another thing about past lives, about these mountains, is I've had weird experiences in the mountains of Virginia. On that episode with Carol, I talked in length, I told the whole story, so I'm not gonna retell it, but uh, I was on a bear hunt and after hours of, of trekking through the mountains, you know, in a, in a designated wilderness, I literally had a, a numinous, uncanny, paranormal experience that lasted a few seconds in which I felt that I had crossed into another time. It was very strange. If you haven't heard that episode and want to hear the whole story, go listen to it. Now, it's not just me who's had weird experiences in the mountains of Virginia, okay? I did an older episode called Your Lore, Spooked Hunters, Tales from the Listeners. On that episode, I had people who listen send me their weird stories, two of which were hunters here in Virginia who had super strange experiences in the mountains. They heard strange roars, one of them heard strange drumming and an animal, what sounded like an animal being torn apart. Very strange. I've got a good friend here. He's a, he does homesteading. He farms. He's a lifelong Virginia hunter. And just a few months ago, him and his little son were out hunting. And he said they heard this like voice of a person, like almost like whooping and screaming and seemed to be throwing things at them. And he said it was so bizarre. And it turns out the area where they were was just a few miles away from a, um, a church in the 1700s that had been raided by uh, a Native American tribe. And so I'm so fascinated with these ideas of past life, these ideas of like historical hauntings. And I think that all makes this story so much more fascinating. And if last winter you listened to the episode about titled 19th Century Medical Oddities with Dr. Jamie Day, um, you'll remember a lot of the weird stuff that doctors were doing in that time period. That also plays into this story. Um, you're gonna hear about uh, how the doctor in the story, he does things, um, he's a mesmerist, and that seems to be an old word for hypnotist. So just like with past life regression, he's kind of putting his patient into a hypnosis. Um, awesome. So let's just get into this story. The story is called A Tale of the Ragged Mountains 
by one and only Edgar Allan Poe. During the fall of the year 1827, while residing near Charlottesville, Virginia, I casually made the acquaintance of Mr. Augustus Bedloe. This young gentleman was remarkable in every respect and excited in me a profound interest and curiosity. I found it impossible to comprehend him either in his moral or his physical relations. Of his family, I could obtain no satisfactory account. Whence he came, I never ascertained even about his age. Although I call him a young gentleman, there was something which perplexed me in no little degree. He certainly seemed young, and he made a point of speaking about his youth. Yet there were moments when I should have a little trouble in imagining him a hundred years of age. But in no regard was he more peculiar than in his personal appearance. He was singularly tall and thin. He stooped much. His limbs were exceedingly long and emaciated. His forehead was broad and low. His complexion was absolutely bloodless. His mouth was large and flexible, and his teeth were more wildly uneven, although sound, than I had ever before seen teeth in a human head. The expression of his smile, however, was by no means unpleasing, as might be supposed, but it had no variation whatever. It was one of profound melancholy, of a phaseless and unceasing gloom. His eyes were abnormally large and round like those of a cat. The pupils, too, upon any accession or diminution of light, underwent contraction or dilation, just such as is observed in the feline tribe. In moments of excitement, the orbs grew bright to a degree almost inconceivable, seeming to emit luminous rays, not of a reflected, but of an intrinsic luster, as does a candle or the sun. Yet their ordinary condition was so totally vapid, filmy, and dull as to convey the idea of the eyes of a long interred corpse. These peculiarities of person appeared to cause him much annoyance, and he was continually alluding to them in a sort of half-explanatory, half-apologetic strain, which, when I first heard it, impressed me very painfully. I soon, however, grew accustomed to it, and my uneasiness wore off. It seemed to be his design rather to insinuate than directly to assert that, physically, he had not always been what he was that a long series of neuralgic attacks had reduced him from a condition of more than usual personal beauty to that which I saw. For many years past, he had been attended by a physician named Templeton, an old gentleman, perhaps 70 years of age, who he had first encountered at Saratoga, and from whose attention, while there, he either received or fancied that he received great benefit. The result was that Bedloe, who was wealthy, had made an arrangement with Dr. Templeton by which the latter, in consideration of a liberal annual allowance, had consented to vote his time and medical experience exclusively to the care of the invalid. Dr. Templeton had been a traveler in his younger days, and at Paris had become a convert in great measure to the doctrines of Mesmer. 
It was altogether by means of magnetic remedies that he had succeeded in alleviating the acute pains of his patient, and this success had very naturally inspired the latter with a certain degree of confidence in the opinions from which the remedies had been adduced. The doctor, however, like all enthusiasts, had struggled hard to make a thorough convert of his pupil, and finally so far gained his point as to induce the sufferer to submit to numerous experiments. By a frequent repetition of these, a result had arisen, which of late days had become so common as to attract little or no attention, but which at the period of which I write had rarely been known in America. I mean to say that between Dr. Templeton and Bedloe, there had grown up, little by little, a very distinct and strongly marked report, or magnetic relation. I am not prepared to assert, however, that this report extended beyond the limits of the simple sleep-producing power, but this power itself had attained great intensity. At the first attempt to induce the magnetic somnolency, the mesmerist entirely failed. In the fifth or the sixth he succeeded very partially and after a long continued effort. Only at the twelfth was the triumph complete. After this, the will of the patient succumbed rapidly to that of the physician, so that when I first became acquainted with the two, sleep was brought about almost instantaneously by the mere volition of the operator, even when the invalid was unaware of his presence. It is only now in the year 1845 when similar miracles are witnessed daily by thousands that I dare venture to record this apparent impossibility as a matter of serious fact. The temperature of Bedloe was in the highest degree sensitive, excitable, enthusiastic. His imagination was singularly vigorous and creative, and no doubt it derived additional force from the habitual use of morphine which he swallowed in great quantity and without which he would have found it impossible to exist. It was his practice to take a very large dose of it immediately after breakfast each morning, or rather immediately after a cup of strong coffee, for he ate nothing in the forenoon, and then set forth alone or attended only by a dog upon a long ramble among the chain of wild and dreary hills that lie westward and southward of Charlottesville and are there dignified by the title of the Ragged Mountains. Upon a dim, warm, misty day towards the close of November, and during the strange interregnum of the seasons which in America is termed the Indian summer, Mr. Bedloe departed as usual for the hills. The day passed, and still he did not return. About eight o'clock at night, having become seriously alarmed at his protracted absence, we were about setting out in search of him, when he unexpectedly made his appearance, in health no worse than usual, and in rather more than ordinary spirits. The account which he gave of his expedition and of the events which had detained him was a singular one indeed. You will remember, said he, that it was about nine in the morning when I left Charlottesville. I bent my steps immediately to the mountains and at about 10 entered a gorge which was entirely new to me. I followed the windings of this pass with much interest. The scenery which presented itself on all sides, although scarcely entitled to be called grand, had about it an indescribable and to me a delicious aspect of dreary desolation. The solitude seemed absolutely virgin, 
I could not help believing that the green sods and the gray rocks upon which I trod had been trodden never before by the foot of a human being. So entirely secluded and in fact inaccessible, except through a series of accidents, is the entrance of the ravine, that it is by no means impossible that I was indeed the first adventurer, the very first and sole adventurer who had ever penetrated its recesses. The thick and peculiar mist, or smoke, which distinguishes the Indian summer, and which now hung heavily over all objects, serves no doubt to deepen the vague impressions which these objects created. So dense was this pleasant fog that I could at no time see more than a dozen yards of the path before me. The path was excessively sinuous, and as the sun could not be seen, I soon lost all idea of the direction in which I journeyed. In the meantime, the morphine had its customary effect, that of enduing all the external world with an intensity of interest. In the quivering of a leaf, in the hue of a blade of grass, in the shape of a trefoil, in the humming of a bee, in the gleaming of a dewdrop, in the breathing of the wind, in the faint odors that came from the forest, there came a whole universe of suggestion a gay and motley train of rhapsodical and immethodical thought. Busied in this, I walked on for several hours, during which the mist deepened around me so great an extent that at length I was reduced to an absolute groping of the way. And now, an indescribable uneasiness possessed me, a species of nervous hesitation and tremor. I feared to tread, lest I should be precipitated into some abyss. I remembered, too, strange stories told about these ragged hills and the uncouth and fierce races of men who tenanted their groves and caverns. A thousand vague fancies oppressed and disconcerted me, fancies the more distressing because vague. Very suddenly, my attention was arrested by the loud beating of a drum. My amazement was, of course, extreme. A drum in these hills was a thing unknown. I could not have been more surprised at the sound of the trump of the archangel. But a new and still more astounding source of interest and perplexity arose. There came a wild rattling or jingling sound, as if a bunch of large keys. And upon the instant, a dusky visaged and half-naked man rushed past me with a shriek. He came so close to my person that I felt his hot breath upon my face. He bore in one hand an instrument composed of an assemblage of steel strings and shook them vigorously as he ran. Scarcely had he disappeared in the mist before, panting after him, with open mouth and glaring eyes, there darted a huge beast. I could not be mistaken in its character. It was a hyena. The sight of this monster rather relieved than heightened my terrors, for I now made sure that I dreamed, and I endeavored to arouse myself to waking consciousness. I stepped boldly and briskly forward. I rubbed my eyes. I called aloud. I pinched my limbs. A small spring of water presented itself to my view, and here, stooping, I bathed my hands and my head and neck. This seemed to dissipate the equivocal sensations which had hitherto annoyed me. I arose, as I thought, a new man, and proceeded steadily and complacently on my unknown way. At length, quite overcome by exertion and by a certain oppressive closeness of the atmosphere, I seated myself beneath a tree. 
Presently, there came a feeble gleam of sunshine, and the shadow of the leaves of the tree fell faintly but definitely upon the grass. At this shadow, I gazed wonderingly for many minutes. Its character stupefied me with astonishment. I looked upward. The tree was a palm. I now arose hurriedly and in a state of fearful agitation, for the fancy that I dreamed would serve me no longer. I saw, I felt that I had perfect command of my senses, and these senses now brought to my soul a world of novel and singular sensation. The heat became all at once intolerable. A strange odor loaded the breeze. A low, continuous murmur, like that arising from a full but gently flowing river, came to my ears, intermingled with the peculiar hum of multitudinous human voices. While I listened in an extremity of astonishment, which I need not attempt to describe, a strong and brief gust of wind bore off the incumbent fog as if by the wand of an enchanter. I found myself at the foot of a high mountain, and looking down into a vast plain, through which wound a majestic river. On the margin of this river stood an eastern-looking city, such as we read of in the Arabian tales, but of a character even more singular than there be described. For my position, which was far above the level of the town, I could perceive its every nook and corner as if delineated on a map. The streets seemed innumerable and crossed each other irregularly in all directions but were rather long winding alleys than streets and absolutely swarmed with inhabitants. The houses were wildly picturesque. On every hand was a wilderness of balconies, of verandas, of marinettes, of shrines, and fantastically carved orioles. Bazaars abounded, and in these were displayed rich wares in infinite variety and profusion, silks, muslins, the most dazzling cutlery, the most magnificent jewels and gems, Besides these things were seen on all sides banners and palaquins, litters with stately dames close-veiled, elephants gorgeously caparisoned, idols grotesquely hewn, drums, banners and gongs, spears, silver and gilded maces. And amid the crowd and the clamor, and the general intricacy and confusion, amid the million of black and yellow men turbaned and robed and a flowing beard, there roamed a countless multitude of holy filleted bulls, while vast legions of the filthy but sacred ape clamored, chattering, and shrieking about the cornices of the mosques or clung to the marinettes and orioles. From the swarming streets to the banks of the river, there descended innumerable flights of steps leading to bathing places, while the river itself seemed to force a passage with difficulty through the vast fleets of deeply burthened ships that far and wide encountered its surface. Beyond the limits of the city arose in frequent majestic groups the palm and the cocoa, with other gigantic and weird trees of vast age, and here and there might be seen a field of rice, the thatched hut of a peasant, a tank, a stray temple, a gypsy camp, or a solitary graceful maiden taking her way with a pitcher upon her head to the banks of the magnificent river. You will say now, of course, that I dreamed, but not so. What I saw, what I heard, what I felt, what I thought had about it nothing of the unmistakable idiosyncrasy of the dream. All was rigorously self-consistent. At first, doubting that I was really awake, I entered into a series of tests, which soon convinced me that I really was. 
Now, when one dreams, and in the dream suspects that he dreams, the suspicion never fails to confirm itself, and the sleeper is almost immediately aroused. Thus, Novalis errs not in saying that, we are near waking when we dream that we dream. Had the vision occurred to me as I described it, without my suspecting it as a dream, then a dream it might absolutely have been. But, occurring as it did, and suspected and tested as it was, I am forced to class it among other phenomena. In this I am not sure that you are wrong, observed Dr. Templeton, but proceed. You arose and descended into the city. I arose, continued Bedloe, regarding the doctor with an air of profound astonishment. I arose, as you say, and descended into the city. On my way, I fell in with an immense populace, crowding through every avenue, all in the same direction, and exhibiting in every action the wildest excitement. Very suddenly, and by some inconceivable impulse, I became intensely imbued with personal interest in what was going on. I seemed to feel that I had an important part to play, without exactly understanding what it was. Against the crowd which environed me, however, I experienced a deep sentiment of animosity. I shrank from amid them, and swiftly, by a circuitous path, reached and entered the city. Here all was the wildest tumult and contention. A small party of men clad in garments half Indian, half European, and officered by gentlemen in a uniform partly British, were engaged at great odds with the swarming rabble of the alleys. I joined the weaker party, arming myself with the weapons of a fallen officer, and fighting I knew not whom with the nervous ferocity of despair. We were soon overpowered by numbers and driven to seek refuge in a species of kiosk. Here we barricaded ourselves, and for the present were secure. From a loophole near the summit of the kiosk, I perceived a vast crowd in furious agitation, surrounding and assaulting a gay palace that overhung the river. Presently, from an upper window of this palace, there descended an effeminate-looking person, by means of a string made of the turbans of his attendants. A boat was at hand, in which he escaped to the opposite bank of the river." and now a new object took possession of my soul. I spoke a few hurried but energetic words to my companions, and having succeeded in gaining over a few of them to my purpose, made a frantic sally from the kiosk. We rushed amid the crowd that surrounded it. They retreated at first before us. They rallied, fought madly, and retreated again. In the meantime, we were borne far from the kiosk and became bewildered and entangled among the narrow streets of tall, overhanging houses into the recesses of which the sun had never been able to shine. The rabble pressed impetuously upon us, harassing us with their spears and overwhelming us with flights of arrows. These latter were very remarkable and resembled in some respects the writhing crease of the Malay. They were made to imitate the body of a creeping serpent and were long and black with a poisoned barb. One of them struck me upon the right temple. I reeled and fell. An instantaneous and dreadful sickness seized me. I struggled. I gasped. I died. You will hardly persist now, said I, smiling, that the whole of your adventure was not a dream. You are not prepared to maintain that you are dead. When I said these words, I, of course, expected some lively sally from Bedloe in reply, 
but to my astonishment, he hesitated, trembled, became fearfully pallid, and remained silent. I looked toward Templeton. He sat erect and rigid in his chair. His teeth chattered. His eyes were starting from their sockets. Proceed, he at length said hoarsely to Bedloe. For many minutes, continued the latter, my sole sentiment, my sole feeling, was that of darkness and non-entity with the consciousness of death. At length there seemed to pass a violent and sudden shock through my soul, as if of electricity. With it came the sense of elasticity and of light. The latter I felt, not saw. In an instant I seemed to rise from the ground. But I had no bodily, no visible, audible, or palpable presence. The crowd had departed. The tumult had ceased. The city was in comparative repose. Beneath me lay my corpse with the arrow in my temple, the whole head greatly swollen and disfigured. But all these things I felt, not saw. I took interest in nothing. Even the corpse seemed a matter in which I had no concern. Volition I had none, but appeared to be impelled into motion and flitted buoyantly out of the city retracing the circuitous path by which I had entered it. When I had attained that point of the ravine in the mountains at which I had encountered the hyena, I again experienced a shock as if of a galvanic battery. The sense of weight, of volition, of substance returned. I became my original self. I bent my steps eagerly homeward, but the past had not lost the vividness of the real. And not now, even for an instant, can I compel my understanding to regard it as a dream. Nor was it, said Templeton, with an air of deep solemnity. Yet it would be difficult to say how otherwise it should be termed. Let us suppose only that the soul of the man of today is upon the verge of some stupendous cycle discoveries. Let us content ourselves with this supposition. For the rest, I have some explanation to make. Here is a watercolor drawing, which I should have shown you before, but which an unaccountable sentiment of horror has hitherto prevented me from showing. We looked at the picture which he presented. I saw nothing in it of an extraordinary character, but its effect on Bedloe was prodigious. He nearly fainted as he gazed, and yet it was but a miniature portrait, a miraculously accurate one, to be sure, of his own very remarkable features. At least this was my thought as I regarded it. You will perceive, said Templeton, the date of this picture. It is here, scarcely visible, in this corner, 1780. In this year was the portrait taken. It is the likeness of a dead friend, a Mr. Oldeb, to whom I became much attached at Calcutta during the administration of Warren Hastings. I was then only 20 years old. When I first saw you, Mr. Bedloe, at Saratoga, it was the miraculous similarity which existed between yourself and the painting which induced me to accost you, to seek your friendship, and to bring about those arrangements which resulted in my becoming your constant companion. In accomplishing this point, I was urged partly and perhaps principally by a regretful memory of the deceased, but also in part by an uneasy and not altogether horrorless curiosity respecting yourself. In your detail of the vision which presented itself to you amid the hills, you have described with the minutest accuracy the Indian city of Benares upon the Holy River. 
the riots, the combat, the massacre, were the actual events of the insurrection of Cheech Singh, which took place in 1780 when Hastings was put in imminent peril of his life. The man escaping by the string of turbans was Cheech Singh himself. The party in the kiosk were sepoys and British officers headed by Hastings. Of this party, I was one, and I did all I could to prevent the rash and fatal sally of the officer who fell in the crowded alleys by the poisoned arrow of a Bengali. The officer was my dearest friend. It was Old Deb. You will perceive by these manuscripts. Here the speaker produced a notebook in which several pages appeared to have been freshly written, that at the very period in which you fancied these things amid the hills, I was engaged in detailing them upon paper here at home. In about a week after this conversation, the following paragraphs appeared in a Charlottesville paper. We have the painful duty of announcing the death of Mr. Augustus Bedlow, a gentleman whose amiable manners and many virtues have long endeared him to the citizens of Charlottesville. Mr. B, for some years past, has been subject to neuralgia, which has often threatened to terminate fatally. But this can be regarded only as the immediate cause of his decease. The proximate cause was one of a special singularity. In an excursion to the Ragged Mountains a few days since, a slight cold and fever were contracted, attended with great determination of blood to the head. To relieve this, Dr. Templeton resorted to topical bleeding. Leeches were applied to the temples. In a fearfully brief period, the patient died when it appeared that in the jar containing the leeches had been introduced by accident one of the venomous vermicular sansus which are now and then found in the neighboring ponds. This creature fastened itself upon a small artery in the right temple. Its close resemblance to the medicinal leech caused the mistake to be overlooked until too late. A note of special interest. The poisonous sansu of Charlottesville may always be distinguished from a medicinal leech by its blackness, and especially by its writhing of vermicular motions, which very nearly resemble those of a snake. I was speaking with the editor of the paper in question upon the topic of this remarkable accident when it occurred to me to ask how it happened that the name of the deceased had been given as Bedlow, B-E-D-L-O. I presume, I said, you have the authority for this spelling, but I've always supposed the name to be written with an E at the end. Authority? No, he replied. It is a mere typographical error. The name is Bedlow with an E all the world over, and I never knew it to be spelt otherwise in my life. Then, said I mutteringly as I turned upon my heel, then indeed has it come to pass that one truth is stranger than any fiction? For Bedlow without the E? What is it but Oldeb conversed? And this man tells me that it is a typographical error.
right now we are sitting inside of the reference library of the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in historic Richmond, Virginia. And this building is lined with bookcases made from the lumber salvaged from the office where Poe began his career in journalism. Really? And we're surrounded by a thousand volumes by Poe, about Poe, by people Poe knew, by people who hated him, by people who loved him. So this is really right there smack in the middle of the museum. And before we started recording, you were showing me my favorite illustrator, Gustave Doré. He's French, yeah? Yes. French illustrator. He's most famous, I would think, for doing Dante's Inferno. If you've ever, if you Google Dante's Inferno, the images that come up are his illustrations. So you showed me his illustrations from Poe's The Raven. Well, around here, he's most famous for illustrating the Raven, and then yeah, he did some other stuff too, the Bible, Inferno. But here, it's all about the Raven. We're craving the Raven around these parts. But this was published in 1884, and it was the last work that Doré ever illustrated. This is the mm. most famous artist in the world of his time. He'd illustrate all the leading books. He didn't have to compete for jobs. People came to him, flooded him with work. But this was the only time he ever illustrated the work of an American author. Really? Poe was considered huge in France, so much so that Baudelaire actually considered him an honorary Frenchman. He's too good for those Americans. He must be French. And when Doré was first approached by Harper and Brothers about illustrating this volume, this new edition of The Raven, he said, well, there's not much to do. It's just really a guy sitting in a chair talking to a bird. It's just never more, never more. He said, I'll do it, but I have to have free reign to represent mentality and phantasm and really get inside the mind of this character. Because in the physical world, there's not a whole lot going on. This is a story about the inner workings of the human mind torturing himself with his own mournful and never-ending remembrance of his lost Lenore. And Dore really did that. He got to the heart of the phantasms that are haunting him and and really changed the way we look at the raven. If you open the book, one of the first illustrations he did was just the guy sitting in a chair holding a book. He's got a lamp on the table in front of him. And that's the same basic illustration we've seen for decades since about the 1850s. Illustrators of the Raven have been showing that same scene over and over again. Every Sir John Tennille, who did Alice's Adventures in Wonderland back in 1865, he previously had illustrated the Raven in 1858, and he started out with the same illustration of a guy sitting in a chair, a table in front of him, a lamp on the table, a book in his lap. But then after that repeated illustration, that's when Dore just goes off the rails and he's showing ghosts and phantoms hidden in the shadow areas. So you can't just glance at one of these illustrations. You just have to stop and look through every shadow to see all the faces and skeletons swirling around the shadows are alive in Doré's works here. They have a presence more powerful, in fact, than the light. And Doré does know how to capture the light, the reflection, but I think in these illustrations, the shadows are the stars. 
So that's, that's it's much more nightmarish, like images in a nightmare or something, especially with the the Reaper, like on the moon or something, or on yeah, what the, is it? The Grim Reaper sitting atop the earth, the earth, yes, and just showing how we're really all just worm food. Mm. And this is really a hopeless poem if you think about it. In Poe's day, there was a lot of poetry about dead people, a lot of poetry about dead women. We have entire books here of mourning poetry from the 1840s. So if you've lost a loved one, you can get one of these mourning books and there's poems like The Dead Child, The Dying Child, The Dead Bride, The Dying Bride. And I looked through these and we've got two of them here and neither one of them had a Poe poem in them. Even though they were published by people that Poe knew, they were during his lifetime. But then I look closely at the poems and they're all about consolation. They're trying to console you Mm. in these moments of loss and Poe doesn't want to console you. He's just going to let you revel in your melancholy. He's going to let you lie by the side of your Annabelle Lee's tomb. Or he writes a poem like The Conqueror Worm. The play is the tragedy man. It's hero, the conqueror worm. We're all just worm food. Or, oh, the lady sleeps soft around her. May the worms creep. <laughs> It's a love poem about a decomposing corpse with worms <laughs> and maggots crawling all over it. And even in The Raven, that most famous of famous poems, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aiden it shall class the sainted maiden who the angels name Lenore. Shall I ever see Lenore in heaven? What's the raven say? Nevermore. And what makes it worse is that by this time, the narrator knows the bird only says the word nevermore. So why would you even ask that question Mm. unless you're torturing yourself, unless Mm. you're driving yourself mad intentionally? Mm. Which is, you know, I feel like one reason I love Poe so much is because my own, as an artist, illustrator, et cetera, my own inner, you know, turmoil where, you know, you definitely can get in these little melancholic, moody, gloomy loops so i see exactly what you're saying with this poem where it's like you almost want to be in the sorrow of this thing yeah now do you do people equate the lenore in the poem with so for listeners his wife died right yes um oh everybody he knows is dead now okay spoiler alert poe died too (laughs) um but do people kind of think that this is probably about his own wife well, the weird thing about it is he published this in 1845, and three years earlier, she was singing at the piano, and she coughed up blood. They realized she's coughing up blood. That's a symptom of tuberculosis. So they called it consumption, consumption because you're yep. gradually consumed by this disease, and it was a death sentence. There wasn't a whole lot they could do for you. Even the cures they thought they had, like sending people to Mammoth Cave to live in a cave for a year. Really? For some reason, that didn't work. And... One of the solutions, they gave her a special kind of beer she could drink that maybe made her throat feel better. And they gave them medicines of turpentine and ground up horns and antlers and things and hoping those would work. Folk medicines almost. Yeah, but he knew she was dying. And he said that sometimes he'd prepare for her funeral. He was ready. He felt she was about to die. Then she got better and he thought, oh, she's cured. They didn't know about germ theory or anything like that. So they just assumed, wow, she must have just been cured. She's getting better. And and then she got sick again. He thought, oh, she's about to die. So it said it felt like she was dying over and over mm. again. Imagine preparing for the funeral. 
Oh, mm-hmm. then she's better. Oh, maybe there's hope. Nope. The back to preparing for the funeral again. Then there's hope again. And mm-hmm. he said of those years of her illness that I became insane with long intervals of horrible sanity. Mm-hmm. So in that time, insanity was far worse than the reality, the sanity of seeing what was going on around him to this one woman he cared about more than anything in the world and seeing her join so many people he cared about. So mm-hmm. first his mother died when he was two. Then his first love, Jane Stannard, died when he was 15. Then when he was 20, his foster mother, the only mother he'd ever really known, she also succumbed to tuberculosis. So it seems whenever he really got close to a woman, she was taken from him, mm. and now he's watching his wife go through that. So that's part of why he wrote so many poems on the theme of a beautiful young woman dying. He's, he actually says the theme most ideally sued to poetry. That wasn't because he hated women or wanted women to die. It's because that's yeah, what he knows. It's the yeah, torture of it. Well, he was trying to figure out, figure out what poetry should be about, what art or literature should be about. If you look a lot of the art from the 18th and early 19th century, there's a moral lesson to it. Mm. You see these figures from Greek and Roman history or from mythology or the Bible, and they're teaching you something. This is an example for you. And poetry should no, be no different from the visual art. It should instruct you. It should make you more patriotic or make you edified or make you more religious. Mm. And Poe said no. The highest purpose of a poem is just to be beautiful. Mm. So this was far out there. This was before the idea of art for art's sake that we hear about in France at the time. This is kind of contemporary with these people who just come with this idea that maybe beauty is enough. Maybe that's the sole purpose. And Poe said that's the sole province of a poem is beauty. But then this is guy's very mathematical. He's very precise. He said, well, how do I define beauty? You can't measure it. You can't just pull out a tape measure and measure beauty or weigh beauty. How do you know beauty? And he said, well, I know beauty by the way it makes me feel. Mm. Beauty is that which stirs the sensitive soul to tears. It's my all-time favorite quote. Yeah. I so. think when, you know, when I'm, I'm brought to tears all the time, even the strangest times, out hunting or something, mm. I just feel it come upon me. And I always think about Poe, you know, for the sensitive soul. Like, and to me, I'm, you know, the name of this podcast is Our Numinous Nature. I'm a big fan of Carl Jung. He has this word numinous, which means like, you know, a religious moment or something, the sublime, like moments like yeah. this, which I think is exactly what Poe is getting to. So carry yeah. on. So, so how does Poe equate beauty with death, especially the death of the most cherished people in his life? Well, if beauty is synonymous with melancholy, if you feel mm. the tears when it overtakes you, he figured that a beautiful poem should be melancholy. Mm. And the saddest thing you could possibly imagine, this theme that combined beauty and death was the death of a beautiful young woman, the death of his first love, the death of his foster brother, the death of his wife. All these things stirred up within him this idea that beauty and death are somehow combined into this ideal subject for poetry that really tugs on your heartstrings and I often equate it to the movie Titanic, if anybody's ever seen that. And it's not an exact comparison because the ti- Titanic is badly written, badly acting, kind of corny. Mm-hmm. But everybody likes it because a guy dies at the end, right? 
<laughs> so you get to cry and stuff. But Poe <laughs> tapped into that long before that, and he actually wrote a lot better than the Titanic. He really tried to make you get inside these minds and figure out how he processes grief. And he did find beauty in other places, and he's also contemporary of the Hudson River School of Painting. They're doing yes. this new movement to try to find beauty and the sublime and connect with it in the American landscape. Yes. We're trying to make an American arts and American literature. The country is still new. Poe went to college at Thomas Jefferson's university while Jefferson was still there. Poe <laughs> met Lafayette when he was a kid. So Poe was not that far removed from the founding of our country, but still our art is still following British models. Our architecture still looks British. Our writing looks British. They're just changing locations to American locations. And the Hudson River School is trying to say, let's make art that celebrates our natural American landscape and the beauty and sublimity of the Hudson Valley. And then Poe comes along and he writes a poem about a beautiful landscape he likes. It's called The Lake. Okay. And it's about these brown waters bound by black rocks. And it's Lake Drummond of the Great Dismal Swamp. Really? And he says he makes an Eden out of that lake. That's the kind of lake he enjoys. So Poe's finding beauty somewhere in the shadows. In the gloom. The, the Hudson River School, they like the sunlight. Poe likes the shadows, the murk, the dank, mm -hmm. stagnant water. And they believe that Poe visited Lake Drummond as a kid. It was a tourist attraction. People would go to Lake of the Great Dismal Swamp back then because Sir Thomas More wrote a poem about it, about how there's a lady of the lake who floats around looking for her lost love. And if you go out at night, you can see the ghost floating in her canoe or across the lake. So people would go out there to this little inn that's in the middle of the Great Dismal Swamp, and they'd watch for the Lady of the Lake. And it could have been swamp gases they were seeing, or it could have been anything. Now, was this based on folklore, or yeah, was it, was it the based invention? on folklore back then? So in Poe's Lake, did he include some of the that folklore from that earlier poet? He sort of hints at it in okay. the poem. So okay. we know that he was he'd read that poem or heard about the legend of the Lady of the Lake. You've, you've opened up a million things to talk about. For one, I did a whole episode of this podcast with a documentary filmmaker up in the Hudson River Valley about the Hudson River School painters. Now, I know Poe, did he not uh, go to West Point for a period? And did he meet or interact with some of those painters? He went to West Point, but they were kind of isolated. They weren't really Allowed interacting okay. with the outside. It's almost monastic the way they were supposed to be restricted there, isolated okay. from the outside world. You weren't supposed to have any poem unrelated to your studies on your possession. So Poe immediately broke that one because he was mm -hmm. writing poetry while he was there. Interesting. Because you can see it from like Cold Spring in, in the Hudson yeah. River Valley on the train. You can see West Point from there. So yeah. I just wondered, because so many of those landscapes up and down the Hudson River Valley were painted by those guys. So that's really fascinating. Well, you know, he was writing an article called The Philosophy of Furniture. He explained the Americans had no ideas how to direct, decorate their houses. <laughs> and he told them everybody should have this one painting on their wall. It was the Lake of the Great Dismal Swamp by John Gatsby Chapman, a Virginia artist. Hmm. So don't get those big Hudson River Valley paintings. Get a picture of the Great Dismal Swamp and okay. hang that on your walls. So he... he Apparently really loved that, but he loved nature around Richmond. He used to play in the woods all around town. Richmond wasn't huge in his time. It was 
when he grew up, there were about 10,000 people here comparing with New York City and Philadelphia, it's just hundreds of thousands of people. This was still a small enough town that people knew each other and, and he could walk just five minutes and he'd be in the country. And he spent a lot of his childhood on the James River. And he did an article about himself. They published an article about him when he was an adult. He was 34 years old. He made the front cover of this newspaper, the Saturday Museum. And they talked all about the things he was proud of in his life, like his poetry. They quoted from different poems. They talked about how his grandfather had known the Marquis de Lafayette. But then at the end of that, they said that one of the things he's most proud of out of everything he's done is swimming six miles against the tide in the James River when he's 15 years old. And he bragged about this accomplishment. Even after people wouldn't believe it was true, he got some of his friends who were present at the swim to sign affidavits to swear, yeah, Poe really did swim six miles against the tide. And since then, we have the internet, so we've been able to search the old newspapers and find out that multiple newspapers carried the story back in June of 1824 of this 15-year-old kid from Richmond, Virginia, who swam six miles against the tide in the James River from Mayo's Bridge today in Richmond, which is called Ludlam's Wharf back then, all the way to Warwick on the James, which is now the Richmond's Deepwater Terminal. And... It's not an easy swim, especially when he left about nine in the morning, the tide would have been coming against him. And he said, you couldn't stop or else it would just push you right back. So he had to keep swimming steadily. A bunch of kids started out, but he just kept on going. And the headmaster from the school followed around on a rowboat to make sure nobody drowned. And if they started to, to lose their place, he'd just pull them up onto the boat and Poe just kept going after everybody else quit. And then he got to the end, he got out of the water and said, okay, I'm going back. And they said, now get in the boat, don't be ridiculous. And they took him back. But I think it went from about nine in the morning till two in the afternoon, so it was quite a swim. Well, like possessed, like the characters in his stories, possessed oh, yeah. by this mission. So you've also, you've brought up more things I want to talk about. One is that you're mentioning how Richmond used to be country. It still is impressive. You know, we have some good friends here. And, uh, you know, we were just visiting over New Year's and, you, you know, within minutes of being basically downtown, you can still go along the river and there's beaver sign. My friend sees otters. Like it still has preserved a little bit, which is really nice to be in a major city and still be able to have some nature. Yeah, it's, it's weird. There's class four rapids right down downtown mm. Richmond. Every once in a while you hear of coyotes in Carytown mm. or a bear that wandered across Belvedere and showed up near the Virginia Commonwealth University campus. <laughs> awesome. A little bit lost. And even here, we'll occasionally see great blue herons swimming mm. over the Poe Museum's garden or a bald eagle. There's there's bald eagles all around here. And so, so we're awesome. close to nature. And that's kind of what Poe appreciated. And when he was growing up, one of his favorite things to do was just go out wandering and play in the river. And that's where he really could become immersed in the stories. He loved Robinson Crusoe, so he would go rock hopping or sailing from island to island and pretending that he's Robinson Crusoe on another new strange world. Or at one time he was challenged to swim to an island in the middle of the river in January, and he and one other kid did it. And he got out there, then he swam back. He was sick for weeks afterwards. And the other kid 
wussed out and he's stopped on that island, couldn't, wouldn't come back. He said, there's no way I'm getting back in the water. They go rescue him or the rowboat. And Poe used to hang out in what's today Hollywood Cemetery. It used to be called mm-hmm. Harvey's Woods. And if you go there, you're on this bluff overlooking the river. It's a great view. You can sort of hear the rush of the, the rapids against the rocks down below you. And you can almost imagine that you're seeing some of what Poe would have seen when he was here. Although when he was here, a few different things you would have seen. The ironworks would have been huge down by the river. You would have seen these big smokestacks belching black smoke. And a lot of that blew up during the Civil War. So now it's just a historic site with a museum. And on the island, Belle Isle, in the middle of the river, they had a racetrack there. They had a factory there. And now it's a park. With some of those ruins. Yeah, it's got some of the ruins there. It still has some of the ruins where you can remember where it was a Civil War prisoner of war camp for yes. Union soldiers. And this is for enlisted men. The officers got to go indoors to Castle Thunder or to Libby Prison. But the enlisted men, they were trying to starve them, break them down. And they sent them to this open-air prison camp, this tent city and up on the hill above it, looking down, there were snipers. Make sure if you tried to cross no man's land, they're going to shoot you. You're no man's die. land being the river? If you tried to swim the river? Uh, no, if you just tried to cross out of these earth barriers they made around it. They sort of ah. made these mounds around. If you cross the mounds, you're dead. You're in no man's land. And they had so many deaths are burying them right there on the site there. So they've even marked off a place on Belle Isle where the burials were. They Since they said they moved all the bodies. Okay. But yeah, in college, that was one of the spots I went to VCU for a year. So that was one of the spots where me and all my friends, all the kids would go down there to hang out and walk around. Yeah. So it's nice to remember that to just walk in there and you can see a fox there sometimes, Mm. or you'll see a ringneck snake. And now I want to stay on this theme of Poe and nature, because I think like the, the, the average person who obviously everyone knows who Poe is, but you know, with historical figures, we might know just one or two tiny things about him. We all know the the famous photograph of him where he looks very melancholic, maybe like post-drunken and just looks kind of effed up. Um, but so I think most people would have no idea that Poe wrote tons of love poems, that Poe loved nature and that he would love going for hikes. Um, are, is there more that we know about, like, for instance, this is my real question I really want to know. In preparation for today, I've been rereading a bunch of the stories, and I reread um, a tale of the of the Ragged Mountains. Um, it says in there that this takes place outside of Charlottesville, and that the mountain range is south and west of Charlottesville. So I'm looking at maps. I do do some hunting and whatnot, and I'm looking at oh, well, that must be below the Shenandoah National Park. That must be in the George Washington National Forest somewhere. So do we have any idea where that story takes place? Oh, yeah. The Ragged Mountains outside of Charlottesville. It's a range. It's still called very, that? Yeah. It's Ragged Mountain State Park. You Are you can serious? Go wandering around there. So this is a place that Poe would have just been able to and run right the out there and explore. Yep. So And that's what inspired him for this story. Yeah. This is something while he was at the University of Virginia, he was able to go take day trips wandering around through the mountains and the wilderness and I had no idea it was a state the, park. In the garden here, we have a stone from the Ragged Mountains. There was a guy who owned he owned a mountain. He had a hunting lodge on top of the mountain. And he had this stone that 
kind of a small boulder that he had the name Augustus Bedloe carved into it because that's the name of the yes. character in the story. He used to tell us that was Augustus Bedloe's tombstone. And when he sold the mountain, he, he gave us the tombstone. So we have that in the garden now in our ragged oh. mountain garden. It's planted with plants from the ragged mountains. So you can see down there, we're trying to plant some mountain laurel to get that to grow there. Mm. And the heart of the museum, this is appropriate to Poe, is a garden. And people come here and the popular perception is just like you said, this is the Halloween guy. This yeah. is the horror movie guy. And then you step out of the visitor center into a green, lush garden. And Poe would have loved that. And he actually wrote that the landscape garden was sort of an art form where God and man work together. So he wrote a whole story, The Domain of Arnheim, about this millionaire. This is a millionaire back in the 1840s. So a billionaire in today's money had way too money, too much money to know what to do with. But he felt he had the heart of a poet and he wanted to make the perfect poetry, the perfect art. And he decided that the perfect art form was a garden. And that's why I have a garden in the middle of the museum. And when the founders of the museum got together, it was 1906. Mm. And they just wanted to build a statue of Poe in Richmond. They said Poe grew up here. He got a start in journalism here. He first fell in love here. He got married here. This is the place that Poe called home. In his letters, he says, I am a Virginian. Hmm. And they thought that since it was three years before Poe's centennial, they should get a Poe statue built on Monument Avenue with all the Confederate generals. And the city didn't want it. The newspaper editorial said that he wrote some nice poetry, but his character was unworthy of being remembered. And they said, well, sure, the, the Northerners like him because they didn't have to grow up with him. And maybe it's better off that he has a statue in the North than here. So they didn't get their statue yet. So they decided to build the International Poe Library, the one-stop shop for all things Poe. In those dark days before the internet, you had to go from one university library to one private library to get a first edition of this book or first edition or first printing of that story or that poem or this letter. And they wanted a place where a scholar could travel and just go one spot and get everything. They thought the perfect place in all of Richmond for the International Poe Library would be 15th and Main at the site of the Southern Literary Messenger where Poe began his career in journalism. And once again, the city didn't think this was a valuable enough cultural resource. So they demolished the building in order to widen the street. Then they changed their mind and didn't widen the street after all. But now there's a different kind of cultural resource there that encourages love of dancing and appreciation of beauty. It's called it's a strip club now. <laughs> but fortunately, the Poe Foundation said at the, least wait, the, his old his old work building the, is now a strip club. Yeah, there's a strip club there. So the Poe Foundation <laughs> saved the bricks and brought them down here to a junkyard. This was just a junkyard okay. back then. And they said, what kind of monument would Poe like best? And they said, well, we could rebuild the Southern Literary Messenger building here, rebuild that office building, or we could recreate one of Poe's poems. Since Poe loved gardens, what about one of his poems about a garden? To one in paradise, which starts out, thou wast it all to me love for which my soul did pine, a green isle and the sea love, a fountain and a shrine all wreathed with fairy fruits and flowers, and all the flowers are mine. So you've got a green aisle, a fountain, a shrine. Because the poem said, all the flowers are mine, these museum founders listed every different flower and tree and shrub that Poe mentioned in his poems and short stories and tried to plant 
whatever they could hear. Mm. So you come back in the spring, the summer, you'll see hyacinth in the spring. He mentions hyacinth in multiple poems. He even compares his first love's hair to hyacinth because it curls like hyacinth. And there's, of course, roses. He mentions that in several poems, like the upturned face of a thousand roses, which grew in an enchanted garden. And lilies out there. We've got lots of tall lilies, Asiatic lilies, morning lilies, just lilies everywhere. Nice big tall lilies, which he mentions more than any other flower. But even wild violets and and pansies, you'd be surprised at how many different specific flowers and trees and things that Poe mentions in his poems. He really was in tune with the flora and fauna all around him. And don't forget the ivy. He got the ivy that was taken from Poe's mother's grave up at St. John's Church, and they transplanted it down here. It's been growing here since the 20s. There's a tulip poplar back there. He said the tulip poplar was the most majestic and beautiful of all trees. We got one back there. We got a live oak here. This is about as far north as you're going to see live oaks. And we've got, yep. got one growing here. Keeps its leaves all year round. They are majestic. And and that just is taken over. And when you look on the overhead view of our neighborhood on Google, Google Earth, you'll see we're downtown Richmond, but then you have this one green blob right in the middle of downtown Richmond, and that's us. And even though there's motorcycles and buses and all sorts of sounds out on the street, here it's this peaceful little oasis where you could escape from the world you just left behind on that sidewalk into Poe's world, Poe's paradise. And that poem to one in paradise, he's describing this perfect garden where he and his first love used to sneak away to see each other. Hmm. And her father forbade her to see him. The little 15-year-old Edgar and his girlfriend Elmira used to hide out a little walled garden Hmm. where they could be together. And that's what we've created here. It's wonderful. And people do still come to see Poe. You could tell by all the lipstick on Poe's bust in the back of the garden that they're still sneaking away to see Edgar. And describe the buildings because they're they're all historical buildings, yeah? Oh, yeah. You have the visitor center and gift shop. And that building from the late 1860s it was built shortly after the Civil War. And the first owner was a baker. And he lived upstairs, had his bakery downstairs. And that was already here, so they made it part of the museum. They just cut a hole in the side so you could have a door in the side there. And once you leave there, you'll see the old stone house, which even during Poe's day was called the old stone house. It's the only colonial era house still standing in downtown Richmond. Hmm. So it was here to watch Benedict Arnold invading the city. Most of the city burned in 1781 when Benedict Arnold invaded, but this house survived. So it would have been here during the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War. It's seen a lot of change on this street. It's witnessed a lot. And it's it really looks like an old house. Oh, and yeah. it's strange looking because around here, most of the colonial era houses are wood or brick. And this is made out of rough stone. Hmm. And it's not even the local granite. We see lots of this granite everywhere. We have granite curbs and granite the sidewalks or granite the streets. And these are sandstone. And they think this is probably from ballast coming from ships. And they drop off the ballast, and the first owner of the house would have brought them up here, built his house out of them. 
And it's all associated with legends over the years because the records when it was built probably would have been in the courthouse that Benedict Arnold burned during the revolution. So we don't have the records for when it was built. Gotcha. So people started to say, oh, this is probably here back in the 1600s or the IR that's on one of the stones outside. That probably stands for King James. That's when Christopher Newport first came here in 1607 and put up a cross on a stone and put IR on it for Jacobus Rex. Maybe that's true. And unfortunately, the truth isn't quite as exciting. We we tested the floorboards and they date the house probably around 1754. So mm-hmm. still old, just not 1600. But we have a guidebook to the house from 1894 that says that Chief Powhatan built the house. Pocahontas got married here. George Washington had his headquarters here. Patrick Henry had a law office here. And James Monroe spent the night here. So this is the folklore. Yeah, that's the folklore. <laughs> and it's great to see those kind of things because they kept spreading more and more stories about how George Washington was here and he and Lafayette were meeting in the downstairs room and you can go to the very room. It's the one where we have Poe's bed now. And that's where they're meeting when the lady of the house told them, I see Benedict Arnold and the Redcoats coming. You have to evacuate. So they raced out. All lies. Washington Mm -hmm. wasn't here. Lafayette wasn't here yet. Benedict Arnold, when he invaded, neither of them were in Virginia. So they couldn't have evacuated from him. It was actually Thomas Jefferson. I don't know about Chief Powhatan making it either. Yeah. (laughs) They said that, yeah, there's a... Indian burial mound underneath one of the the trees in the back and the, mm. probably also made up. So lots of strange stories. Even the thing about the red coats, they probably would have been wearing green coats when they invaded. Well, let's let's hear just about let's get back to Poe. So um how like what was Poe's Richmond like? How so none of these buildings were actually associated with Poe so much? Where did he grow up? Like, tell the listener who might not be too too familiar, like, you know, Poe is an orphan. Like, let's hear a little bit about his early life in this general area. Well, Poe was born in 1809, the same year as Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin, and born in Boston. His mother was a traveling actress. His father ran out of the family, and then Poe's mother died a month dad, short of his third birthday. The dad was an actor, too? Yep. Just not a very good one. Okay. So, actor in quotes. Apparently, okay. got booed off the stage on a few occasions. His his best review said he's he's doing better. He's not good yet, but he's doing better. So he so he abandoned his kid. Yeah. Does anyone know what happened to him? There is a record of someone by that name of David Poe in a debtor's prison in New York in 1810. Hmm. So that could be where he ended up. He could have contracted disease while he was there, but his relatives never heard from him again. So we don't know what happened. Maybe maybe he died in prison. Maybe he died shortly thereafter. So Poe's three and he's an orphan. Yep. And, and and so what happens to a three-year-old in that time period? You know, Local families stepped forward to take care of the kids. And Poe went to live with the Allens, John and Francis Allen. Allen's a wealthy tobacco exporter. And his sister Rosalie went to live with the McKinsey's. And the McKinsey's were in the insurance business and also ran a girls' school. So Poe's sister got to go to local girls' school and... Edgar thought he'd hit the jackpot because he went to a boys' school and he could use his sister to meet girls in her school. Mm. And girls back then kept little leather-bound albums of poetry. And gentlemen would write poetry in their albums. We have three of these poetry albums in our collection. And 
co-star writing poetry for the girls in her school. Well, that was awesome. And apparently they it really worked. liked the poetry. Well, <laughs> until they found it was the same poem he sent to everybody. <laughs> and while he was here, I told you it wasn't a very big city. It was nowhere near the size of Baltimore, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, mainly an agricultural economy. But it was the capital of Virginia. This is where the laws were making. The legislature would meet here during the winters. So sort of a part-time legislature, just still like it is today. And Poe got to rub elbows with John Marshall, the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. They went to church together. Or he would see John Randolph of Roanoke, a U.S. senator he writes about in one of his stories. And the Allens were pretty well off. When Poe was a teenager, Mr. Allen inherited a fortune. And he inherited about three-quarters of a million dollars. Hmm from a rich uncle who didn't have any kids. And and they moved into a grand mansion here in town called Moldavia. Hmm. And Moldavia was built by Molly and David Randolph. So they just stuck their names together, made Moldavia. And the Randolphs, they're one of those families that's been here for already then, back in the 1800s, had been here for centuries. And the Randolphs were related to all these people like the Lees, Jefferson, Washington, John Marshall, so if you're related to one of these, you're related to all of them. Hmm. And there's contemporary letters at the time. They say that they don't know how they feel about some merchant buying one of the Randolph's houses. He's not part of the planter class. This John Allen, he's only immigrated here from Scotland as a teenager. He's not even really a Virginian. He's hmm. just this new guy. So a very class-conscious society. Oh, sure. And very different than the North. The so North, he was new money. Yeah, and the North was getting more industrial, and and you're getting more of a meritocracy in the North. But in the South, you still a lot of it depended upon who you know, your character, who you who you were related to, because the agricultural economy had to borrow a lot of money in order to plant in time for the planting season. You had to borrow a lot, and and your word, your honor, that was your credit ranking. Your credit score was your honor and who you were related to. That's why. Some people, like, I think Jefferson would have had maybe a 500 credit score if in today's system, but dude kept borrowing money and going deeper and deeper into debt. But he had a, the important name. People knew this is somebody. We can, we can bank on this guy because of a name. And as such, one way to really establish who you were is you had to have honor. Hmm. And that meant that if somebody challenged you, you had to respond and dueling was hugely popular in Poe's lifetime. It had been outlawed in the North, but the South, it was extremely popular. And we went through about six different magazine editors in Poe's, in Poe's Richmond had been in duels. I think about half of them died in duels. Poe actually challenged a guy to a duel called John Moncure Daniel over just something Daniel had written about him. So magazine editing was life and death back mm. in Poe's day, but also politics. And there's several And do you Virginia mean pistol? You mean like muzzle-loaded pistol, pistol Yeah, duels. pistol dueling. They had different books out that gave you the 26 rules of dueling you had to follow, and you had to have a second to deliver a letter to the other person detailing the rules of the duel. And during Poe's time, a lot of people he knew, friends of his, were either seconds in duels or they won duels or lost duels. 
and Poe's right in the middle. He wrote about duels in some of his stories. That's why when you look back at something like the Cask of Amontillado, mm-hmm. the thousand injuries of Fortunato I'd borne as best I could. But when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. Mm. In Poe's lifetime, yeah, if somebody did insult you, you might just end up dueling them. So long after this was viewed as a barbaric practice in the North, in Virginia and in the South, it still maintained its popularity. In New, or- New Orleans, they had a dueling academy. Hmm. And one visitor said that there were something like 18 duels a day when they were visiting. A visitor from Europe came to Richmond in Poe's lifetime and said that you had to be very careful about these Virginia gentlemen that even a coldness of matter, a coldness of manner could result in a duel. Mm-hmm. Just you could easily offend these people and you don't want to end up getting yourself shot. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I live in the mountains of uh, West Virginia in Appalachia. So I've obviously learned through since living there, I've done podcasts about it, about like Hatfield and McCoy's mm. just family feuds. And some of that stuff kind of lasted even longer, you know, up in the mountains, just some of that. Yeah. And there was one of Poe's friends was Hiram Haynes. And he had another friend he went to school with and Haynes and his friend, who was George Tucker, they were both seconds in a duel against each other, but posed friends with both of them. And it was a politician who'd been who'd gotten drunk. He was a state politician. He'd gotten drunk and he'd insulted an innkeeper. So the innkeeper smacked him in the face. And and afterwards they made up and people said to so this politician, his name was Droomdoggle, that that you need to challenge this guy to duel because he slapped you in the face. He said, well, we made up. We're friends now, right? And that, no, no, man, you will be embarrassed. You will have to leave this city if you don't go ahead and have a duel with him. So he challenged the guy to a duel. They had the duel. And the politician shot the innkeeper and killed him. And this did not hurt his political career at all. He got reelected like three times. So sometimes dueling helped your career. Like, look at Andrew Jackson. He's gotten so many duels that he can't remember how many duels he was in. He even mm-hmm. carried a bullet in his body from one of them. He just couldn't get it out. He still got a bullet in there. And and after this, there's one of Poe's friends was upset. I think it was Hiram Haynes was upset that Tucker hadn't told him that the guy had died in the duel. He died a couple days after the duel, and he was upset that he hadn't told him. And he says, I challenge you to a duel for not telling me that the other guy's duel, the other guy in the duel died. And Tucker said, actually, I'm of the planter class. I'm of a higher class than you. So technically, you're just a magazine editor. You can't challenge me to a duel. Mm. And you could do that if you were a higher class than someone. You could just opt say, out yeah, of it. Yeah, you're like, I'm kind of too good to duel with you. Wow. So did Poe ever get into an actual duel? No, he okay. showed up at Daniel's because, office. Because the, sorry to interject, but it, it sounds as though that Poe is like quite the cantankerous, insulting guy, you know, especially yeah. with his harsh critiques of other people. So he never got... No, you know, into one of these yeah, things. Yeah, he tried to get one of his friends to be a second. What is that? You keep saying that's that. the one who carries the letter to the other person's second to sort of their their representative. Okay. So you have other people negotiate on your behalf. Okay. So the two people actually angry with each other don't actually have to talk to each other. You get you appoint somebody who has to talk to the other person for you. And Poe tried to get one of his friends to be a second, and they wouldn't do it. So. 
instead of having to deliver a letter, he just showed up at Daniel's office one day and pointed a pistol at his face and said, I challenge you. Poe did that? Yeah, and the, <laughs> the guy just said, why don't you sit down and have a drink with me instead? So they pulled out some drinks and they sat down and they made up. <laughs> that is wild. That is wild. So it's it's dangerous being a politician or magazine editor in Poe's Richmond. Wow. Now, one thing I did want to ask was, because you were talking about just almost this like kind of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn childhood of Poe, um, because of my own selfish personal interest, did Poe do any hunting or any fishing on the river or anything like that? Is there yeah, he likely did. They don't have a lot of records. Okay. They do know he's a good shot. Apparently, one of the times he got in trouble growing up was for going on somebody else's property at night and shooting their pet birds. <laughs> what, like in their cages? Yeah, they must have been <laughs> the cages. I think it was Bush, Bushrod Washington's house. He went there and shot some birds. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh. So he he would get around, get into trouble. He'd stay out late. And even as an adult, he wrote a piece called Morning on the Wissahickon. And the Wissahickon Creek goes sort of through Philadelphia. And it's Poe used to sail along the Wissahickon, get in a little canoe and sail along the Wissahickon. Mm. And he wrote a story about seeing an elk while he was there. Mm. I'm not familiar with that story. It's a very, very short one. It's one of his plate stories. There is a steel plate engraving of a elk, of a deer, actually. And Poe was commissioned to write an article that would go wrong with the illustration. So sometimes they had the illustration first, oh. and you'd have to write an article about it. So Poe wrote this whole story about that illustration, sort of changed the species from a deer to an elk just so it sounded better. Interesting. So just a little bit of more biographical information. So it, it sounds like, so he didn't grow up on a plantation or anything like that. He was grew up in a city mansion, new money dad, well, yeah. adopted dad, but he was never quite adopted, right? And that he had a super tough relationship with his da dad. And, you know, he never got any of that money. He kind of was impoverished for the rest of his life. Is that kind of right? Yeah, he was a foster kid. So his foster father never legally adopted and they just took him in. And Mr. Allen there gave him the middle name of Allen, so he's got that much. And growing up, they were dependent upon the tobacco market. They were tobacco, they exported tobacco and flour, they imported European goods and Asian goods. And then the War of 1812 came along, hmm. three years after Poe was born, and their big market was England, and now that sort of cut off. So there were times when they struggled growing up. They still had the mercantile business, but they moved, bounced around from different houses. And eventually when Edgar is six years old, the Allens end up going to London to establish a branch mm. of their firm over there. So Poe got to go with them. As this little kid, he got to see one of the hugest cities in the world, got to see London and things he couldn't have dreamed of here and went to a boarding school while he was over there. And he came back here and he's 11 and once again, lived for a year in Allen's business partner's house while they were bounced around between houses. So there's nine different homes in Richmond where Poe lived because they bounced around so much. And Poe, as an adult, kept bouncing around. He mm. often would stay in a house for a year or two and then move on to the next one. Sometimes he'd move because he couldn't pay the rent. Sometimes he'd only be in a house for six months. And so why did their relationship... Uh, kind of fall apart? Was it because Poe had his own creative dreams and his foster dad kind of had some a certain path he wanted for him? Like where, what created their rift? And uh, yeah. Well, 
Mr. Allen was a businessman. He'd come here as a teenager with nothing. He thought he'd brought himself up by his bootstraps and really mm-hmm. made something himself in the new world. And you said he was from Scotland? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, he's from Scotland. And he wanted Poe to do something like that. Poe okay. should really succeed in business. And Alan agreed to make sure that Poe was properly educated. And he sent him to good schools around And thank town. God he did, because that's why we have this incredible yeah. literature. But then Poe became a teenager. And mm-hmm. he must have been a pretty difficult teenager. And one of Alan's letters, he said that Poe is sulky and ill-tempered and disrespectful. Doesn't show a spark of gratitude for all the charity I've shown him all these years. It's just not one good thing about that boy. And so apparently Poe was a difficult teenager. And Alan didn't respond well to it. So mm-hmm. they had violent arguments. And when it came time for Poe to go to college... He went to the University of Virginia, most expensive school in the country. Room and board, tuition, all that was $350 a year. Give you an idea, when Poe was working at the magazine in town 10 years later, he was making $500 a year. So $350 is a ton of money, but Mm. Alan's rich. He's loaded. He can afford this. So when Poe went there, he wanted to be a poet. He'd been telling people, I'm a poet. He'd been writing poetry, giving poetry to different women around town. But there's no professional poets here. How are you going to make a living there? That's just a foolish dream. You, know, you think of the British poets like Lord Byron's a lord. He has a day job. And yep. even in the United States, the writers were people with day jobs. They were lawyers or they were doctors or they worked in a customs house. They had government appointments. They didn't have to rely just on their writing. Writing was just more of a gentleman a, hobby. Yeah, it's a hobby. It's something. It's not something to devote your life to. That was just a foolish dream, a quixotic quest. And and Poe was here trying to be the American Lord Byron, dressing up like Byron, staring off into space, looking like Lord Byron <laughs> with the wild, curly hair. Byron actually put curlers in his hair to make sure it's extra curly and wild. That was the romantic era when it's cool to have like the wild Einstein haircut. Think of Beethoven or Goya. That was the sort mm-hmm. of look they're going for. So Poe went off to college and... His options are maybe I become a professor or a lawyer, and then I can devote the rest of my time to writing poetry. Mm-hmm. So he decided since Jefferson set this university up, he said you could choose your own curriculum. You got to pick what you studied, which is really revolutionary for the United States. Another univer- revolutionary thing about this was that it was the first secular university in the country. Other universities were Episcopal or they're Methodist or Baptist. This was a secular university, non-sectarian Instead of having a chapel in the middle, it had a library. The rotunda had a big library in it. And so Poe went there, and he wanted to study what would advance his hobby of poetry. He studied ancient and modern languages. And Alan said, how is this going to help you take over the tobacco export business? Mm -hmm. You should be studying arithmetic or bookkeeping or something that's useful. And he only gave Poe about a third of the money he needed Poe couldn't even afford a French book for his French class and wrote back to Alan saying, can I have a French book for my French class? And Alan sent him an arithmetic book knowing that Poe wasn't taking any arithmetic classes. Mm. This as an insult to him saying, this is what you should be studying. So while Poe was there, he started borrowing money and couldn't pay off the money he borrowed. So he started gambling. And before you know it, he's $2,000 in debt no chance of paying off his tuition. So he only stayed there one year. It's humiliating. He did so well in his classes. You know, mm-hmm. he, 
he probably would have passed with honors, would have gone on to a comfortable life as a lawyer or a professor, but they came back here with his tail between his legs and, and Alan put him to work as a bookkeeper in his counting rooms. Hmm. And Poe hated that. And it only took him a few months before they had a violent argument. And Poe stormed out and, and said, I'm determined to find some place in this wild world where I'll be treated not as you've treated me. And he says, I'm going to see the world. I'm going to get out of this small backwoods town. I'm going to go up north where the big cities are, where I'm really going to make a name for myself in letters. And he didn't have two cents to rub together. So he stowed away aboard a coal ship. And he finally made his way up to Boston. And age 18, he published his first book of poetry. And that's really early. Usually poets at the time would wait till they were 30 or something to publish their first book. But he's, he's in a hurry. He's got to get it done right away. And it's a print-on-demand. We, today we would call it a print-on-demand job. Mm, you, mm. He got 50 copies printed. And they look like a farmer's almanac, just this little cheap paperback edition, about 40 pages long. And he couldn't afford to pay for the copies once they were printed. So he never owned a copy of his first book. Hmm. So what you were saying, what you were alluding to a few minutes ago, I've heard this said, is it true? Poe was the first person, at least in America, who tried to make a living just at writing. Is that yeah, True? he's the first one to really, the first major writer to really try to make his living just off his writing. And he didn't really make a living. I mean, he was dirt he was, poor. It was hand to mouth for most of his career. He tried whatever he could. First, he tried joining the military. And he, he enlisted. He was an enlisted man for two years. And then he went to the United States Military Academy at West Point. And... Back then, the enlisted men were usually immigrants or the poor or people who weren't very well educated, and they would enlist. And you could work your way up, and the highest you get was maybe sergeant major. It took you about 17 years to do on average to get that high. He made it in two years. So that's why he said, I'm officer material. And the officers, you know, the wealthy people, the connected people, the higher class. And if you were kind of like the merchant class, you could become an officer in the U.S. Army and work your way up in the class. So, you know, Richmond's very class conscious. So he thought, maybe I'll do this, work my way up, and I'll be a gentleman. You could actually call yourself Esquire if you're a gentleman. Mm. And he always called himself Esquire anyway after this. But, but he hired somebody to take his place in the Army and serve out the rest of his enlistment. You hear about this happening during the Civil War all yes, the time. People who didn't that. feel like fighting, they would just hire somebody to take their place and fight for them. So Poe said, I'm going to hire somebody to take my place in my enlistment. And he was at Fort Monroe here in Virginia at the time. And he never paid the guy because he never had any money. So that got him to more trouble. But he did get himself into West Point. He got an appointment to the United States Military Academy because when he was growing up, he's foster father knew General Winfield Scott, you know, Brigadier General, huge in the War of 1812, the Second Seminole Wars. This was somebody who was well known by then. And also John Allen's business partner's brother was Powhatan Ellis, who was a U.S. Senator. So you got all the connections you need, and they got Poe into West Point. And once he got there, they, they've checked the records, and for 10 years before and 10 years after, no other enlisted man had gone to West Point. So Poe was doing something a little bit different then. So we could be talking about General Edgar Allan Poe mm. 
if they hadn't kicked him out. Mm. Well, that seems part of his lifelong pattern, getting kicked out of stuff, not being able to finish stuff. (laughs) Well, it's the imp of the perverse, he called it. And there's a story called The Imp of the Perverse, but he also writes about it in The Black Cat, about this- That's my favorite one. Uh, this idea that, you know, sure, there's this voice in you that tells you the right thing to do. You know what you should do, but then there's like this dark passenger that's telling you to do the wrong thing for the wrong thing's sake, even if it's going to lead your downfall. Mm-hmm. This voice, when you're staying on the edge of a cliff- it's pushing you ever so closer, closer to the edge, even though you know that falling off that cliff will lead to your destruction. There's something that leads you on to do the thing that you know is horrible, you know is wrong. And the black cat, he loves his cat. But that force within him that somehow gets more powerful and he's had something to drink, it makes him pluck out the cat's eyeball with a pin knife just because he knows it's a horrible thing to do. And even now you think about it, that's a pretty awful thing to do. Imagine yourself doing that to the cat that you love, that sitting on your lap, you think the world is cat and you just pluck out its eyeball just because you know that's just an unforgivable crime and you know you'll hate for yourself for it. So Poe understood that that little guy on top of the elephant, he's not driving the elephant. It's the elephant. He's going where he wants to go, in and he the, sort of makes some suggestions there. In the Jungian term, I would call that yeah. the shadow. Yeah. So he's letting the shadow do the driving. Yeah. And and once he pulls the eye out of the cat, that's that's just the first step in a chain yeah. of events of darker and darker. Yeah, and the black cat, we've got a guy who's kind and gentle. He loves all of his animals. His cat, his monkey, adores his wife. To be continued... I hope you've enjoyed part one of our Edgar Allan Poe podcast. Next time, you will be hearing the entire haunting short story of the Black Cat. Until then, stay warm on these long, dark nights of winter, and see you next time. Many, many years ago, in a kingdom by the sea,
Ooh.